Okay, it looks like it's about that time. So let's go ahead and just about the time it got loud in here is when I <laughs> when I got to start. So, so we are we are here head coverings in First Corinthians eleven. So if you didn't intend to be here, uh, why? There he goes. Uh, you can you can find something else. And you can see here my my. Uh, my subtitle is probably as important as the title, Case Study for Contemporary Issues in Cultural and Theological Interpretation. I'll explain what I mean by that. i start by saying here that the question of head coverings that's raised here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is not one that has earned a lot of attention in the modern American church. Most have long since dismissed this as a cultural issue without a whole lot of thought. It's just not on our radar screen. This is not a universal sentiment. Uh, Much of the international church still honors this tradition uh, as practiced in 1 Corinthians. And it's really only been in the last century that Americans have shaken off this deference to this this practice here. In fact, there are still some isolated churches, even small denominations, that require head coverings for married women especially, and some for all women. We'll talk about why that is in a bit. Uh, There seems to be perhaps a little bit of an uptick in interest in the matter because of multiculturalism that's continuing to gain steam. And then also extreme ideologies in American political life, which have taken root in the American church, that tend to push us to extremes on both both edges. And I think both uh, the conservative and progressive extremes uh, tug at this issue. That said, uh, my goal, while... My first goal is to determine whether women in the 21st century need to wear hats, but ultimately that's not the centerpiece of what I'm trying to do here this morning. I've actually got three goals, which is probably too, too many, but uh, that's uh, that's what it is. Second goal here I have here is to address uh, the role of theology in exegesis and interpretation with this case study here. Particularly, we have here uh, the question of economic hierarchy in the Trinity uh, that seems to be under review here in 1 Corinthians 11.3. And uh, we have to determine how theology informs exegesis. Uh, Nicene orthodoxy. Is Nicene orthodoxy uh, irrefutable? Uh, A third is to establish a model for identifying and applying culture-bound principles in biblical interpretation. How do we know what is is culture-bound and what we have to take uh, completely at face value and obey uh, in its entirety? Okay, and then, of course, how is this useful to us? How is it helpful for us if, in fact, it is culturally bound? First, uh, Second Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is profitable. So how is something that is culturally defunct uh, profitable for us? And so that's the cultural part of my subheading. So cultural interpretation, cult- cultural issues in interpretation and then also theological issues. So the question, the passage in question begins in verse 2, I think because of a bad chapter division, there's actually those who disagree with this, but, uh, and runs through verse 16, and I'm just going to read this up front, and then we'll pick it apart verse by verse here. Verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings, the paradosis, just as I pass them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though she was bald. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. It's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off. She should cover her head. A man not, ought, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, curious statement there, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So judge for yourselves. It is, pro is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And that's how I'm going to end it, right? With no questions, right? <laughs> Paul begins here in verse 2 with a commendation for uh, the Corinthians for remembering the tradition. I praise you for remembering this tradition, remembering him in pr prayer and practice, holding to the paradosis, just as I passed it on to you. And this, important is, this, this word here is important for us because it tells us something about the importance of what Paul's about to say. For Paul, the, this, this tradition, this paradosis, is not a light term. It goes beyond preference or custom to something that is probably on par with the apostolic tradition. It's how it's used elsewhere. And Paul elsewhere elevates this to the level of Scripture. Uh, the regard that Paul's reader had for the traditions was commendable and important and worthy of praise. And this is important for us, too, because we're going to be talking about the Nicene tradition and I want to go on record as saying that I hold that in high regard, too, uh, along with the other two so-called ecumenical creeds, the Apostolic Creed, the Athanasian Creed. But these should not be equated with the apostolic tradition of which Paul is speaking. Uh, still, uh, we want to be very careful in diverging from them. So by beginning, with, by beginning with a commendation of the Corinthians for their general regard for this tradition, Paul hints about the problem. What's the problem? Well, the problem is they are observing much of the tradition, but not all of it. But not all of it. There's at least one critical element that the Corinthians were disregarding. So what is it? Well, we're tempted to move immediately to the practice of head coverings, but the text doesn't really let us do that. Uh, he actually says that the issue is that they were uh, um, not merely disregarding the custom, which was part of the tradition, but because they were actually getting rid of this principle that was pointed to uh, by these head coverings, namely that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of woman is man, and that the head of Christ is God. That's, that's the tradition that they were slipping in recognizing. So they were 
they were they were exemplifying that they were they were de demonstrating that they did not hold to this piece of the tradition by not wearing hats but the concern was this element within the tradition that the head of every man is Christ the head of woman is her husband and the head of Christ is God and so the critical concern here that Paul is discussing is the apostolic teaching of authority and submission in the life of the church or uh, the more familiar category that we just uh, heard some lectures about here is complementarianism. This is what he says must be maintained. Now, before we go into the discussion here of, of what we should do uh, with, uh, say, the Nicene formula, uh, let's look at the nature of head coverings. Uh, there's a few errors that we need to avoid in attempting to identify what it is. First, we recognize that the, and because hair is mentioned later in the passage. Some have suggested here that the covering could simply be hair, but rather there's, a, there's an external covering. The context makes that very clear. Okay, so the, so it, there's a common cultural practice here of covering the head. But what, with what are they covering their head? Well, firstly, I want to say here, the covering is not a veil or a face covering uh, for the sake of modesty that is sometimes practiced within Middle Eastern cultures. Um, uh, there, there does not seem to be any indication that that kind of, uh, kind of device was ever used uh, in the ancient world. Uh, we have, we have lots of, we've got lots of paintings and pictures and sculptures and such, and there's no indication that this even existed in that day. So the burqa is out here. Nor is it the bonnet, and most certainly not the prayer cap, that's common in broadly Anabaptist. Cultures. Rather, what we have and what we have discerned from uh, usage in the New Testament era, statutes, artwork, uh, the covering that Paul has reference to was either the loose end of an outer garment or a separate loosely fitting cloth garment worn over top of the head, much like a modern day scarf or a hood. It was not designed to hide the face or the skin. For the sake of modesty, it was strictly a symbol of deference worn by all women under the authority of a husband. Uh, and for this reason, depending on the specific cultural practice, younger and especially unmarried women didn't have to do this, uh, just married ones. But again, there's, there's variations practiced here. Okay. Now, if this practice is no longer viable, why do we need to bother with this? Well, then you've got a point there. Uh, but if Paul's words... Uh, if, if Paul's words are a specific moral imperative for the whole church, then we, when we really need to follow it to the T. Um, and very many of those who uh, practice, the, practice head coverings don't do that. So I think it's an important thing just to point out here, here. Uh, but let's let's get to right to the uh, the chase here the, the the major issue major theological issue that has really hit the fan in the last thirty years or so, um, and that is there's this analogy made between the relationship of the father and the son to the relationship of men and women in the church. Of course, you're aware that there's been quite a bit of rancor in the contemporary church over the past three decades over this. It's really shocking how, how rancor it's, it has become. Um, in fact, uh, one, one of the concerns I have is that we you know, dial it back a little bit, and both sides here are guilty of it. Well, I want to start here with, uh, with the 
you know, the first salvo here, uh, and it comes from the complementarianism, complementarians who affirmed early on what has been come known as eternal functional subordination, EFS, that's probably the one, probably the one you see most often, ESS, also seen a lot, eternal subordination of the sun, and then eras, uh, eternal relationships of authority and submission. This is one that was proposed uh, by those who just didn't like the, the harshness of subordination. And so this was sort of uh, proposed as a third option. Uh, there's, there's, there's other acronyms out there, but we'll, we'll just leave it with these three. Uh, the opening salvo here comes from Robert Lethem, uh, who wrote an article in 1990 in the Westminster Theological Journal, uh, at least it's the first I'm aware of, uh, that sounded this alarm against egalitarianism for failing to honor the economic trinity by flattening out all gender hierarchy. And he says by doing so that these egalitarians were, in his words, abandoning an orthodox view of God. He's quickly joined here by others. Tom Schreiner writes an article in 1991 in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, and uh, he argues that due to their regard, disregard of this passage here, 1 Corinthians 11, that the egalitarians had embraced a serious, and I'm quoting here, a serious misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Stephen Kovac added here uh, uh, an article, article uh, Evangelicals Revamp the Doctrine of the Trinity, one, one of the first issues of the Journal of Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And he says, title says it all, they've revamped the doctrine of the Trinity by, quote, denying the eternal subordination of the Son. And his great contribution was to demonstrate uh, that this is a very well-established position in church history. And I can't overstate that, uh, uh, particularly in the Reformed tradition, this idea of subordination and eternal subordination is well established. Uh, in fact, Kevin Giles uh, says that Charles Hodge is the patron saint of eternal subordination. So this is, this is not a new thing. And it's sometimes how it's sometimes cast that this, this eternal subordination is something brand new that the complementarians invented in 1990. And that's, that's not true. Uh, some, some have suggested that he may have overstated some of his, uh, some of his appeals, but uh, I think in general he's done a very good job in identifying these. Other con contributors here, and sometimes it's hard to keep these straight because there have been some who have changed their minds on all or part of this issue, uh, but Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, uh, Kostenberger, John Frame, John Piper, Denny Burke, D.A. Carson, and others. The egalitarians push back, though, and, uh, and, uh, and suggest that two can play this game here. Um, their argument is manifold, but let me just put out three major points of their platform here. Uh, you may say there's more, but uh, let, let's just put these three out there. Three major arguments. One, eternal subordination renders the son unequal in power with the father. The father has more authority, therefore he has more power, which makes Christ less than and effectively other than the father, and thus denies that the father and the son are, to use the Nicene term, consubstantial, is the first argument, and then opens them up to the charge of Arianism. Secondly, eternal subordination of the Son can only occur if there are distinct and competing wills within the Godhead, which perhaps we could dispute. 
And then thirdly here, some eternal subordinationists, though not all, have expressed doubt about the doctrine of eternal generation, which is likewise a staple of the Nicene Creed. Okay? So, who fights back? Well, the first article generally regarded as Gilbert Bilizekian, a 1994 ETS paper, Hermeneutical Bungee Jumping, Subordination in the Godhead, which was later published in Jets. Okay. Kevin Giles is also an early voice and a particularly caustic one. Uh, he really ratchets up the, uh, the, the temperature of the debate here. Uh, two books, uh, Trinity and Subordination, Jesus and the Father. This has been uh, a, a major theme of his career. Other dissenting voices include Tom McCall and Keith Yandel, uh, uh, and uh, they associate subordinationism with Arianism in a debate with uh, Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem in 2008. Uh, uh, Fred, Zander, Fred Sanders also be, has become a major contributor here, though he's not distinctively egalitarian in stance. He tries to avoid committing himself publicly, although you, you pick up clues that he has sympathies with complementarianism. Um, and then uh, Millard Erickson uh, puts out a rather diplomatic summary volume. Of course, uh, Erickson is sort of the master of diplomacy. He writes this book, Who's Tampering with the Trinity, and ultimately concludes that it's the eternal functional subordinationists that were guilty of tampering with the Trinity. And then for a while there, there was sort of a little bit of a dormancy, a, a lull, battle lines drawn, not much battling going on. But it sort of erupted again in 2016 with a second wave of subordinationist defense. Bruce Ware and John Stark uh, edit a series of essays entitled One God and Three Persons, with contributors from 12 sympathizers, and this rekindles something, a debate that had been somewhat waning. Uh, we also have Michael Ovey's book, Your Will Be Done, Jonathan Routley's book, Eternal Sub uh, Submission, and then uh, I'll add, there's a lot of names that we can put here, but Owen Strand has also been a strong defender, yeah, strident a little bit at times too, uh, defender of subordinationism in various venues. He's just a major name. I couldn't really leave him out here. Um, and then there's a series of responses. Okay, we've got egalitarian responses continue from Giles, from Stephen Holmes, from Fred Sanders. But now we've got a new wave, if I may, of confessional theologians, many of whom are complementarian. Not all of them, but many of them are. Uh, who are arguing strictly from th on theological grounds rather than egalitarian grounds um, against uh, this eternal functional subordination. Uh, Liam Goliar, pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church, is one of the first of these. Carl Truman, then at Westminster, Philadelphia. Scott Swain, reformed. J.V. Fesco at Westminster, Escondido as Westminster West. Okay, so we've got a, we've got a number of these, but by, by far the most notable and strident of these newer voices has been Matthew Barrett from Midwestern, whose 2021 book, Simply Trinity, is broadly considered the definitive critique of the EFS position. So with that caveat on you know, historical development in our side mirror, let's get back to the text, because no matter how highly we regard Nicaea, the biblical text is our norma, normans, non normata, right, for theology and exegesis. So what's Paul saying about the Trinity, and how does that 
how does that fit in then with gender roles in the church as they unfold? Well, as you can imagine, there are going to be two competing uh, understandings. One that says uh, that there is essential equality in the Trinity, uh, and one that says that there is eternal functional subordination of the Son to the Father, which is a model then for gender hierarchy in church at home. I'm going to start with the latter of these and recognize that there are actually two different approaches. So the earlier approach, and uh, we, we heard a little bit about that from Grant Castlebury, uh, the, the, the principal argument that was used for a long time uh, was that this word kephale, or head, as it's translated in our translation we read here, uh, means... Okay, I'm not sure why that's not jumping in one by one, but... Uh, You've got it in front of you anyway, so there it is. Okay, so let's deal with the first of these. The first, uh, the earliest egalitarians muted the analogy in 1 Corinthians 11 by reading kephale as source rather than head. And there's a number of reasons why this is likely. First, the source reading, I say here, was first hazarded. Uh, in 1954, it's not seen anywhere in church history prior to 1954. It's not found in any commentary prior to 1968, and that would be C.K. Barrett. Uh, so recognize, not, that's not Matthew Barrett there. That's C.K. Barrett's uh, uh, commentary on 1 uh, Corinthians. No English translation has interpreted Kephalea's source either. Uh, rather, the term here has been uniformly regard, been regarded as a figurative of authority until recently. Uh, you, you, you've heard already uh, what Grudem did. Right? He's, he's written extensively. He's actually written three times here on the lexical use of kephale. And there really has not been a credible response, in my opinion, that's been mustered. Uh, the first of these articles was, does kephale mean source or authority over an examination of 2,336 examples? He published this in 1985 in the Trinity Journal and defended it at ETS. And this really became the principal catalyst for the formation of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And so he surveys 2,336 ancient Greek sources. Uh, he's using uh, the TLG database, this, the Thesaurus Linguae Graeca, which is a massive database of Greek literature, which continues to grow. At the time, he, had, he found 2,336 usage, and he found exactly zero that meant source, or at least only source. Now, he did say that there's some that meant head in which source was present, but that wasn't the principal meaning. So 32 uh, times he finds kephale means head, but exactly zero that meant source. And he's continued to do his research as TLG has expanded. And at last, last, I, last record I could find is that he has found <coughs> scores of examples in 41 different sources uh, in which kephale means head, still looking, I think, for the first one uh, that actually means for sure and singularly the idea of source. Um, and so this, this idea of source has actually, in, some, in, in many circles, has, has gone out of favor. Uh, it's, it was the favor, favorite of all egalitarians, but uh, he really you know, put, the, put the kibosh on that. Many egalitarians today, even, have migrated away from the source translation to a more generic idea of prominence or visibility. And they're not going to say authority, uh, but not source either. That, that really has been dealt something of a capital blow. Uh, but... Uh, 
uh, translating kephale also as head, uh, uh, excuse me, it should be source. Uh, translating kephale as source makes nonsense of the parallelism. Uh, based on verse 8, we could see how Paul might argue that uh, the Adam was the source of Eve's substance because she is created from his rib. Um, but if we accept for, argue, for sake of argument for, for now, the eternal generation of son, we might possibly see a parallel between Eve's origin in Adam and the father's generation of the son. There's a sharing of substance here that is made. Not exactly parallel, but close. But the parallelism completely breaks down with the Adam-Christ parallel. Christ is not the source of Adam in the same way that Adam is the physical source of Eve, and most especially not in the same way that the father shares his essence with uh, with Christ, the, the parallelism simply breaks down. We talk, talk about heresy. Uh, that, that really collapses suddenly. Furthermore, uh, the identification of Eve as Adam's source doesn't make any sense of the pericope. Uh, what connection does the creation of Eve have to head coverings? Well, the whole passage loses its force if the idea of source is applied. But the idea of Authority makes great contextual sense. Uh, now, of course, the question is whether it makes sense theologically. Is there a, an, a, an eternal arrangement, hierarchy of authority between God the Father and God the Son? Now, before we go into some of the specifics here, I want to at least address, as an aside here, the question of eternal generation. I've mentioned here that some complementarians have denied the idea of eternal generation. I say here that the idea of eternal generation has very, very deep historical roots. Uh, tracing at least to origin, uh, third century, though probably not much early because, earlier because the doctrine is not found in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Origen's understanding of the doctrine was rather poorly expressed. In fact, Arius cites his view of, of eternal generation as proof of Arianism, okay? uh, that the Christ was created by the Father. Uh, but this, term, this idea of eternal generation was still included in the Nicene Corrective to Arianism. But there was added here that Christ was begotten, but not made. That's the qualification that appears there in Nicaea, and much has been made of it since. <clears throat> Arius had said that begotten means made, and perhaps he has a good lexical argument for that. Uh, but uh, the, the, the argument here is that uh, when Origen said it, he was talking about something other than creation. Okay? And this qualification was enough to establish eternal generation as part of Nicene Orthodoxy, orthodoxy. Now, definitions of eternal generation and begottenness and the procession of the spirit, which is a parallel idea, uh, have been notoriously difficult to pin down. Most admit to a level here of some mystery uh, that defies objective definition. At its heart, Eternal generation teaches that from eternity, the Father makes common the singular divine essence with the Son. That is, it's ontological in nature. Somehow the substance, the essence of 
God is shared with the Son. Now, no new substance is produced. That's critical here. Rather, this is a strictly ad intra settling of God's eternal essence upon the Son and by procession upon the Spirit. Now, details are elusive, but those who hold the doctrine as orthodox are confident that there's no explanation other than this that makes sense of the essential fatherness of God and the essential sonship of the Son other than this idea. Okay? And for some reason, I've gone blank, and I'm not sure why. Aha. Here we go. It's coming back. Okay, because of the elusiveness and the mystery involved, doubts about eternal generation also have a long history. Calvin rather famously expressed doubt about the doctrine due to the paradox of Christ's being simultaneously asse, that is, of himself, self-existence, but also from the Father. He couldn't couldn't harmonize those two ideas. Or to use the terms of John 5, 26, the paradox is Christ receiving from someone else life in himself. Because if it's from someone else, it's not of himself. So that, that, that was the confusion here. And Calvin just couldn't get his mind around that. And so ultimately defended the idea of eternal generation, but he reduced the, the definition to the idea of the generation of the son's personhood. Okay? Not his essence, but his personhood. Calvin's doubts have echoed ever since, especially in the Reformed tradition, where similar doubts have appeared um, in, uh, in Hodge, Dabney, Shedd, Warfield, Van Til. Um, and some have actually denied the, the doctrine entirely, such as Lorraine Bettner and Robert Raymond. And there's some reasons why this is the case. I've got four listed here. Firstly here, the majority understanding among Greek scholars is that the term monogenes, normally translated, or or, or, in, in older translations, translated only begotten, probably reflects more the idea of uniqueness. So rather than monogenao, the only one born, it's monogenes, which, which is the only one of its kind. So, you know, remember from back in, back in biology, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genos, species. So, so the idea, so it's the only one of its kind. So, so the idea of uniqueness is maintained by this idea of monogenes. Now, now Lee Irons has uh, recently put out an article that attempts to reclaim the only begotten translation, but it is by no means a closed case. In fact, there have been some good answers uh, that have been made to him in various Venues. I'm not sure that uh, he's he's made made his case definitively. Okay, more, and even more so, this idea of the spirit's pro- procession, uh, the, the the spirit that proceeds from the Father. Uh, almost all your commentaries suggest here that that's not an ontological procession, but rather it's the sending of Christ on his mission, his New Testament mission. Uh, so this procession is not ontological, but missional, if I may, or, or economic, to use another term that uh, often shows up here. The crux interpretum of the doctrine uh, the, the, uh, is John five twenty six. This is the one that uh, Calvin stumbled over. It says here, Uh, that the Father has given Christ life in himself. And so this is 
considered by many to be the crux interpretum. This proves that the Father gave to the Son divine life in himself, uh, self-existent life. But the context seems to suggest uh, that there might be something else in view here. In the same context, he says, I have given to the Son authority to judge. I have given the Son the authority to give life. Okay, and so the so not all, but many commentators have come to the conclusion here that this probably is not stating here that God gave him ontological life in himself. It's it's actually somewhat odd that it would show up here. It's sort of out of the blue, Uh, but it does fit the context here of because of the work of Jesus Christ as the the God man, he has been given authority to judge and the authority then to give life. And so that's uh, the idea here of this life in himself. The phrase, the one born of God, 1 John 5, 18, the one born from God keeps the believer safe. In every other case, uh, John uses the one born of God to reference a believer, never Christ. And so the idea here is that the one born from God, by persevering, maintains his own uh, maintains his own uh, security by persevering, uh, by perseverance. And then finally here, uh, the psalmist statement, this day I have begotten you, which is sometimes regarded as strictly messianic, likely has the force of coronation, not generation. So it's a formula that's used in the installation of all the Davidic kings, uh, not only Jesus, and furthermore, this day, that in which he was begotten actually shows up four different days in the, in the life and ministry of Christ. So it's difficult to pin down what day is in view. It's probably here. It's a, it's an announcement here of Christ's kingship more than, more than anything. And so at the end of the day, um, eternal generation, uh, I, I mean, I, 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 there, there still is the argument out there that Father is called Father and the Son is called the Son. And it's difficult to understand what that can mean uh, without, the, without the idea of eternal generation. But these arguments, I think, uh, together uh, suggest that one can legitimately seek for models for explaining this relationship other than eternal generation without necessarily being heretics. Uh, biblical orthodoxy certainly demands that we, that we maintain the eternal fatherhood of God and the eternal sonship of the Son. But doubts about the Nicene formula do not necessarily, I think, amount to the abandonment of biblical orthodoxy. Nicene orthodoxy, yes, but biblical orthodoxy is not necessarily the same thing. So coming back to our text, and we're, I'm behind. So how do the anti-subordinationists handle... Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. Okay, well, we've, 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 we've mentioned that the older, the egalitarians from the 80s and 90s said uh, we'd use Kephale as source. Confessionalists, um, uh, on, uh, the confessionalist anti-subordinationists have come up with a different argument now. It's not, not I'm not going to say it's new, uh, but the principal argument now that's being used here is, and I should back up here, is that um, this is a temporary matter. So the, so when Paul is saying that the headship of Christ is God. He is speaking only in terms of the incarnational ministry of Christ, and it is temporary, okay? 
And so uh, that's, 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 the, that, that's as far as subordination goes. So it's only the human Christ, uh, the, uh, the incarnate, the Christ in his canonic state, uh, that is, in fact, subordinate to the Father. There's a couple of reasons why that doesn't, I think, work. One, the copulative that's used is... And implies that the economic ordering is a present reality. Man is the head of woman. Christ is the head of man. The Father is the head of Christ. There's no indicators to, ind- to suggest here that the comparison is from a previous state to the present one. Second, and uh, perhaps you want to just turn the page over there in your, in your, in your scriptures here. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 indicates that subordination extends all the way back here to the creation, right? For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through him all things came and through whom we live. And uh, so it appears here that back in the creation, there was a, an ordering, an economic ordering, a function, uh, but perhaps, but you know, not perhaps, I think even stronger than this here is what we find in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, which extends this subordination into eternity future. So let's read this with some commentary along the way. Then the end will come. It's the context of the resurrection, right? And the, the order of the resurrection. The end will come. When Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all competing dominion, authority, and power. For Christ must reign until he has put all uh, all enemies under his feet. Likely, the Father places all things under Christ's feet based on Psalm 110. But ultimately, that's incidental to our our point. And so he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then Paul offers a citation from Psalm 8. The Father has put everything under Christ's feet. But when he says everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include the Father himself, who put everything under Christ. So he can't cede away his own place in the divine hierarchy. But then back to the main argument. And when this is done, When Christ's every last enemy has been destroyed, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, the Father, who put everything under the Son so that God may be all in all. It's a remarkable conclusion. At the end of ordinary history, long after the kenosis has been reversed, the very thing, the very last thing that happens is that the Son is made subject to the Father, resulting in a most perfect ordering of all things. And it seems to me that to suggest that economic subordination of the Son is limited to the canonic state pursuant to his redemptive cross work is outside the realm of exegetical possibility here in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. So, having said that, what are we going to do with this? Okay, well, some observations about Paul's analogy. First, he emphatically makes the point that personal value and importance are not in view. We heard much about that from Ephesians 5 in the last general session, right? Personal value and importance are not in view. Just because there's hierarchy does not mean uh, that the one on top is personally more valuable or more important than the people beneath him. Functional subordination, whether in the church, in the home, or in the innocence of Eden 
does not imply personal inferiority. The son defers to the father, but this deference is one of functional hierarchy. Ontology is not in view. The complementarian ecclesiastical tradition is seated in God's own internal relationships that still are the original ground rules of the created order. So this is no trifling custom, but a transcendent principle that was practiced uh, outside the church. I think also that there's some interest, an interesting development in the ordering that Paul uses. We sort of would expect him to say the head of the woman is man, the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is the father, or perhaps the other way around, the father is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. But he doesn't. He mixes them up in seemingly a random way, but I don't think it is. He says here, the head of man is Christ, the head of man is woman is man, and the head of Christ is the father. And why does Paul do this? Well, he doesn't say, okay? But a ready explanation comes to mind that many commentators have observed. Uh, uh, firstly, just as, you know, is today, uh, he, he, he sandwiches the con controversial statement between two less controversial statements. But I don't think it's just a mere rhetorical trick that's in view to sneak in some sort of an uh, objectionable statement here unnoticed. I think instead, by bookending the three statements with Christ, Paul is communicating not only that Christ, by perfectly submitting to the Father, is a model for women as they relate to men, but that Christ, by perfectly ruling over every man, is a model for men as they relate to women. I think this is a critical device here, uh, not only to dis diffuse some suspicion, uh, but also to inform us what Christian ruling and submitting is supposed to look like in a fallen world, a fallen world that gives us precious few good examples, right? Because in Adam, men tend to be abusive and women tend to be recalcitrant. That's, that's the fall, right? That's, that's the fall. Um, but in Christ, it doesn't have to be that way. And in the church, it doesn't have to be that way. So far from suggesting that men are to be to subjugate obstreperous women, that's not the idea here of subordination in home and church. Paul is recommending a ver veritable return to paradise. Each person looking to Christ as a model, respectively, of both benevolent leadership and gracious deference and the mutual furtherance of God's purpose. Okay, now, the analogy doesn't work perfectly because the Father and the Son are uniquely of one mind and will and and uh, men and women are not, husbands and wives are not. But at the same time, there does seem to be a concern in Corinthians. In fact, he starts 1 Corinthians 1 and ends 2 Corinthians 13 with this appeal here for the people to be of one mind, one heart, and one will. And so I think that's the goal he's looking for here. Now, I've been assuming up till this point that the terms... Uh, men and woman, aner and gune, which can mean men and woman or husband and wife, uh, uh, we, we probably should decide uh, which is in view. Uh, the use of the definite, definite article with man in this verse suggests the latter. The head of a woman is the man, or perhaps better, her man, or even better yet, her husband. Uh, still, I, I, it does seem that there is within Paul at least some 
indication uh, that men have some sort of general authority, not only in home and in church, uh, but also in society at large. But I don't really want to be any more specific than that because <laughs> Paul isn't. Okay. So don't let that uh, to distract you then from the main point that Paul makes. The point is not about head coverings, but about complementary gender roles. This is the apostolic tradition that needs to be maintained. And if we learn nothing else, uh, I think we've, we've gotten Paul's major point. So why does he bring up head coverings then? Well, I think it's an illustration of Paul's teaching, but not the essence of it. Let's see if we can't um, see how he unfolds this. Every man who prays prophes or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. I've just got to speed this up a little bit here. So what, what does he mean by this? Well, if a man adopts a culturally defined feminine custom and starts praying, he's doing something at best silly and worse, morally repugnant, because he's actually doing this while worshiping. Okay. By dishonoring his head, Paul could mean two things. He embarrasses himself, or he insults his spiritual head, who is Jesus Christ. Both are true, uh, but it's likely the last that Paul has in view. Uh, by implication, women should be embarrassed if they adopt a culturally defined masculine custom and start praying. They should feel the same sense, in fact, Paul says, uh, as if they had been shaved bald. And uh, this, is a, this is a tradition that's generally been universal. There are, there are exceptions, but for the most part, the idea of women going bald is still thought of as a little bit distasteful um, and masculine here. Uh, again, this, this is a, it's a custom. doesn't mean that it's, 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 it's necessarily universal. But I think the point is that in every culture, there is some line that can't be crossed uh, in, dis in distinguishing men from women. Uh, verses 7 to 10, so a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man, interpreted, a man cannot honor God without honoring also her husband. By creating woman from man as he did, God established from creation the principle of male leadership in marriage. In verse 8, I've got more to say here, uh, but uh, we're just going to keep it, uh, keep it simple. By establishing woman as a helper suitable for the man, God further establishes this arrangement as his will for families and also as the arrangement most be best suited for human flourishing. And then thirdly, even angels function within similar hierarchies in their realm of existence. There's, uh, commentators are all over the map on, on why the angels are concerned with this. Um, there is a similar reference in 1 Timothy 5.21. It's probably not coincidental. It's in the context of church order. Uh, so I, I, think it's, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the case. My best suggestion here is that angels, despite their differences with humans and with God, still function according to echelons of order, uh, submitting not only to God, but apparently also to archangels, ruling angels. And uh, this reminder that some of their own uh, had failed to do this to their own, uh, to, to their own, to their own uh, disaster. Uh, beyond this, I'm not sure I have any further comment here. But in any case, we find in 
verse 10, Paul's big idea. This is the conclusion that women should retain the sign of authority on their head. Now, we expect him to say people, you know, women should wear, just wear hats or shawls or, or hoods or whatever the case may be. Okay? But he doesn't. He actually sort of pulls his punch here by saying that women should wear the exousia, is the word. Translated most of the time, power. Okay? In fact, the King James actually has that, you know, that women should have power on their head. Um, and, but probably what we have here is the symbol of power. Almost all your modern translations uh, have gone this way. So it's a symbol of power or a symbol of authority on their head. And I think what we, what we find here is good reason to think that Paul allows for this symbol to change over time, but the principle doesn't, okay? And so I think that's why he backs off and says they should wear this sign of authority on their head. Now, some have asked me, in fact, I was just asked this morning, so, uh, so what, is, what is the sign of authority for 21st century women? And uh, there's, it's actually a hard question to answer because I think our society is, is systematically trying to eliminate as many of these as possible, right? Um, and so part of my answer is, it, Paul's not saying you have to invent a sign in order to, to, to obey this, but rather, if there is a sign of authority in your culture, you should maintain it. Probably the closest thing I, I, can, ha- I, I can come up with is the still almost universal practice of women taking their husband's surname uh, when, they, when, they get, when they get married. There's a reason why it's not Mrs. and Mr. Mark Riley, or Heather Riley. It's Mr. and Mrs. Mark Snowberger, uh, because culture has, is still recognizing the propriety of doing it that way. And so that's perhaps one of those things that's, that's left. But there, there, again, our society is not keen on too many of these signs today. I don't think we have to resurrect ancient ones in order to make this happen, though. Okay? Then there's a qualification in verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, it's a rather strong adversative here. Neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as man came, woman came from man, the original time, even so man, ever since, comes through the woman. All things are from God. And Paul's parent, apparently worried here that some tyrannical men at Corinth might seize upon his words as an excuse here to regard their wives as inferior and perhaps even to abuse them. And Paul says, no, that's, that's not the way it is. So that's why we have this sharp adversative. Nevertheless, specifically, he observes that while the very first woman came from man ever since, uh, men come from women. And so we should anticipate something of a singularity of mind to subsist between men and women in the church, family, and society. Not, obviously, identity. Each person has his own will. Uh, At the same time, we should recognize that in the church, there shouldn't be this conflict of wills that is constantly ongoing just because there is a hierarchy of authority. Okay? Then he makes a curious appeal in verses 13 to 15. Does not nature itself 
teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And this is fascinating for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because Paul makes this appeal to natural law. As an authority parallel to biblical authority, really only does this one other place, and that's in Romans 1 and 2, uh, which I had the privilege of listening to Tim Miller here in this last hour talk about that, uh, this, uh, this idea of natural law, uh, as, a, as, a, as an appeal to, for, for, for ethical instruction, for establishing ethical conduct. This word phusis is used I think 11 times in the, in the Bible, but only in those two, this here and in Romans 1 and 2, as, as a basis for ethical uh, instruction, okay? And the interesting thing, of course, is that the thing that is unnatural in Romans 1, 26 is what? It's okay. You can say it. <laughs> Homosexuality. It's, it's unnatural. That is to say, it violates the natural order and I think overturns the purpose of the human race. I'm I'm not inclined to think that this is so much a biological unnaturality, although it is, as it is a racial unnaturality, that we ought to be able to look at this and say, no matter matter whether you you, you like it or enjoy it or or whatever the case may be, you, you step back and say, this does not do for the human race what sexuality is supposed to do. It's unnatural. So it's shocking then to see this same appeal made to short hair on men and long hair on women, which doesn't seem to be so obviously unnatural. So are we supposed to see homosexual behavior and long hair, grooming habits, as equally natural and unnatural? We seem to have two options. Either homosexuality is universally wrong and proper hair length is universally imposed by God for men and women, or oppositely, hair length is culturally relative, doesn't matter, and so is homosexuality. Wayne Grudem is also, I think, helpful here in, uh, in offering a biblically informed model for distinguishing what is absolute in Scripture and what is culturally conditioned. And this pretty much wraps things up for us. Um, He offers six culturally bound practices that are widely regarded as such uh, by the Christian community, even the evangelical community. And he names these as the holy kiss, foot washing, head coverings here, and hair length the prohibition of jewelry and braided hair for women, and the lifting up of hands in prayer. And the reason we know that these, some of these are not absolute principles is we, we, find, we find exceptions to them, right? Samson had long hair. The Proverbs 31 woman had jewelry. Um, uh, and, you know, there, there's other postures that are commended in Scripture for prayer. So, so, so how do we come to the conclusion that these and not say homosexuality, are culturally conditioned. Well, his conclusion here is these six are singled out because Paul is offering in each case a physical action that has illustrative or symbolic value in establishing an easily seen moral theological principle. If you have all the three of those things in place, he argues, and I think it makes good case here, 
uh, good, good, good sense here. Uh, then we have something that is culturally bound. Whereas something in which the physical action is essential to the meaning, such as homosexuality, does not fit in this category. And so each, in each one of these, I think we can look and say, aha, there is a principle, a theological principle in view uh, that is represented and expressed, illustrated by these symbols. And we could per- per assign them, right? So uh, the, 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 the holy kiss would be, uh, would be greeting one another, uh, foot washing uh, would have to do with perhaps uh, hospitality or service, and we could go down the list and discover what the principle is in view. I think he's done a pretty good job of suggesting these, and uh, I've, I've, been, I've been in favor of what he's uh, concluded. One last brush fire. If anyone seems to be contentious, We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And I interpret this to mean that while the practice of head coverings may be debated, even as we are doing today, the New Testament world in which the churches operated knew of no alternative custom in that day that adequately preserved the principle of subordination that was in view. And so in Paul's day, the principle and the symbol were to be maintained. But he leaves open, I think, the possibility that as culture evolves, the symbol may be replaced or simply die out, but never the principle. So three conclusions. Paul is not requiring all women everywhere and in every age to cover their heads while engaged in public worship. But it may be necessary to do so in certain cultures. The principle still stands that men and women should conduct themselves in home and church in a manner that maintains a distinction between the genders and communicates appropriate emphasis on male leadership. And thirdly here, while cultural expressions of masculine and feminine conduct, dress, grooming, etc., are not universal, Christians should take the lead in establishing firm distinctions between the appearance and function of men and women in their respective societies.